Sam, thank you very much for coming to chat with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself um, and a little bit about what you do at Navy Federal. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Pam Pledgian. I am the CMO at Navy Federal Credit Union. I have been here six years in that role and really honored to be here. Uh, it's uh, It's been quite the journey and uh, exciting to uh, exciting effort to lead. So Navy Federal um, has over 12 million members, one of the top 10 credit card issuers in the country. And it's it's specifically for vets and the military. Is that correct? Correct. We are the, as you stated, we're the largest credit union in the world and really 12.7 million members. And, uh, you know, really we were founded, we just had our 90th birthday and we were founded around serving the military. The branches of service that we that we serve has expanded over time, but now it is full, every branch of service, all active duty, including the Coast Guard, uh, which reports into Homeland Security. And veterans, any veteran who left from any branch of service with an honorable discharge is able to join us, which is fabulous. And then we're also open, as you probably know, people do bank with their family members, so their family members are also eligible. So um, each active duty and veteran person brings a little more than two uh, members with them, their family. So um, it, it really is, that's a big part of our growth too, is the friends and family as well as that active duty and veteran that we were founded to serve and that we're set up to serve. So it's, it sounds like a big, broad family um, under the, the general umbrella. So we have a lot of listeners who probably don't understand the minutia of a bank. I think people understand what a credit card is, how a credit card works, how a checking account works. But I, I imagine there are additional core services or ancillary services that define Navy Federal. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the first the first part of the question, just what you offer um, from a services value perspective, and then why would a veteran or an active military serviceman or woman come to you and not bank with Chase or any other, you know, it, sort of typical financial institution? Thank you. I'm honored to answer that. We are a full service retail provider. So we provide all retail banking services. So whether that has to do with lending products, uh, as you mentioned, check uh, credit cards, but as well as consumer loans and uh, um, mortgages, et cetera. And then on the checking deposit side, and then on the investment side, we have Navy Federal Investment Group. So full service retail, anything you might need. And I think when you ask the question about why would a veteran bank here, um, I like to talk about that in two categories. One is value. We do offer the members a value. Um, the average member will save over $400 a year by banking with us, and that's in reduced fees and lower interest rates. Um, so that's the value that we offer and deliver to them. And, you know, today I also think value, part of the value equation is making it simple, making it stress-free to bank with us. And we definitely do that and focus on how we can serve our members to do that for them in their banking. Also, for veteran and active duty population, it's about the values. They want to be with somebody like us that's a credit union founded around serving the military. We understand what that means, and we also understand that has some unique challenges. So military folks will end up moving a lot in their careers. So we'll call it PCSing, permanent change of station. And with those frequent moves comes all kinds of different financial needs, and we really understand that and can help them through that. 
for veterans who have moved past that phase of their life, they're no longer PCSing. They don't need that service, but they appreciate someone that knows how to do that and what they do. And then there's particular veteran products like a VA loan. We're one of the top five VA lenders in the nation. And really, if you're going to get a VA loan, which if you qualify, you should. It's a great deal. And, um, you know, you want to do that with a provider who does that day in, day out and knows what they're doing and can really help you through those um, specifics. If I understand correctly, there's key value in in. I don't like I'm not at an economic level, right? Reduced fees and in lower interest rates, average saving of $400 a year. Um, it's not, and like I know from a marketing and advertising perspective, from an advertising perspective, it's not a shoe in and it's a challenge. But from an outsider, they would be sitting here thinking, okay, so it's like an amazing deal. Like, like just put that up on your shingle, right? Save money. We have lower interest rates than you're going to get elsewhere. Um, what are some of the actual challenges? Why? do you still need to advertise? Why is there a marketing department? Well, it starts with job one, which you questioned me about. I think an opening is who can join. You have to understand who can join. And if you can't join, truthfully, we can't even take your money in a deposit account. So making sure that we're very focused on reaching those veterans in active duty and telling them that they're eligible for this. This is a benefit that they've earned. And making sure that they understand that. Uh, we've also seen it in our brand tracker. Even those who aren't eligible, when they understand who we serve, their favorability and consideration fuzz goes up. Mm-hmm. So the the if you look at our body of work, um, so not every television spot, not every radio, not every digital banner, but if you look at the body of the work, it's very consistent on hammering home that field of membership because we want to make sure it's very clear who we who we are, who we are, what we were founded to serve, and who we do serve. So it's really to tell you about your eligible. And then the other part of the advertising is to reach you when you're in the market for those products and services so that you do consider us and know that we are a very strong, viable option for you. Also, the other thing that's a bit of a differentiator for us is, yes, we have branches across the United States. We have branches internationally on bases where active duty will be stationed. That said, we also have a 24-7 phone center. So you can reach a live human being 24 24 hours, seven days a week. And that's an important part of this delivery. I think when you think about uh, military, you typically will think about a younger audience. And you might think that they prefer to be 100% digital. Well, they do for a lot of their day-to-day banking. But by the same token, being able to reach a human being when you have a question or a challenge or just want to understand something better is really worth it. So because of that, our service philosophy is always about letting you choose the channel that you want to interact with us, but making the path to a human easy. That's a really interesting thing for a bank um, because I think every bank will say that they're member centric. I, I heard once you say that you're member obsessed, which I really like. Um, our tagline is that we're neurotically focused on client profits. And we've had actually like, there have been people who were offended by that. They didn't like the word neurotic. It had a negative connotation. Um, I don't know if obsessive is, is in that camp, but I like it because it's like really planting your flag in the ground and saying, yeah, like we're, we're member obsessive. And that's an example. I think like to get a real person on the phone at Chase where I bank is like, it's next to impossible. Um, so that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. You came from advertising. Right. So you have a, a, a background in advertising at the agency world. What what prompted you to make a switch from that world, wearing multiple hats, getting a hand in lots of different types of accounts? 
I know you did a lot of incredible work for Durex, and now you're CMO of Navy Federal. It seems like a major tectonic leap. Um, and I'm always interested in learning about how people progress in their career and, and sort of what catalyzed important changes in somebody's life. You nailed it. It is definitely a big change. And I always tell anybody who's thinking about a change, make sure you're running to something, not from something. So, you know, for me, moving from the agency world, which I grew up in. So I worked in consumer packaged goods early in my career. I also worked in service brands. I worked on Navy Federal was one of my accounts when I was a group director at my last position. That said, the agency world um, can get you to be a little bit of an adrenaline junkie because you get to think about new businesses all the time. You get to think about new business challenges. And truthfully, you come up with a very fabulous strategy, good creative to execute against it, measure that delivery, fine tune it, et cetera. But you're often not responsible for that service delivery or that full circle, maybe all of the consumer touch points across of it. So the opportunity came up for me to come to Navy Federal six years ago. And because they were my client, I knew their culture. I knew their values were real. And a lot of brands and companies will talk about their founding and their purpose, but they talk about it from a historical perspective. And I knew at Navy Federal, it was real and it was current. And so being part of that and working at a place that was so mission-driven was really attractive to me, as well as doing that across the entire marketing mix. So whether it's earned media, social media, our digital channels, our um, branding, uh, supporting our branches, um, really was ex exciting and still is. So that's why I came here. But it was like drinking from the fire hose because it's very different to think about one client and one business and the logistics of making that happen every day. Um, we always talk about how our members are the mission, and that's true. Our members are the mission. And part of what we can do for our members sometimes is just look at their process and their banking needs and figure out how do we m remove the rocks along the way. Well, sometimes those rocks were there for a reason. And sometimes it's hard because different channels aren't talking to each other. So there's a lot of that um, heavy rock building and heavy rock moving that's an important part of being successful on the client side. The thing that's similar to it is just the healthy curiosity. Um, probably know from your backgrounds in the agency world, the people that thrive on the agency side, I think are naturally curious and they're driven to find answers. I don't always say solutions, but because I, I say it's, it's answers, it's kind of like, uh, how might we, or how can we help? What would we do to approach this problem? I think on the client side, it is still about that focus and that mission and the strategy is important and biz building the business is important, but the number of boulders you have to move to make things happen are diverse and uh, across a wider array. You're working with operations, you're working with HR, you're working with um, ISD, you're working with branch operations, you're working with call center operations, you know, every day. And um, that's an important part of the role um, and an important part of what makes you a successful marketer coming from an agency side. I think if I had just been involved in the advertising portion of it, this would have been a harder leap. But being involved with clients on some of their earned media and social media efforts and their corporate communications also helped prepare me for the leap. That's really interesting. Um, on that contrast between the agency world and then working, let's just say client side, I think sometimes, or at least this is what I hear from my team, there's a, a great stress and pressure with having to be spread thin across 
a bunch of different client accounts and client projects. And even if you're a group director of a couple pieces of business, it's never like a couple pieces of business. The work doesn't end. Um, it's an unlimited amount of work really with one client, but especially when you add now seven, eight, nine different projects. Now I have direct reports um, and then I have a boss and now I have budgets to, to, to allocate and I have goals to hit. Um, it could be overwhelming agency side, but, and tell me if you agree or disagree with this, there's a certain relief valve almost that if you fail at a certain piece of business, but overall you're doing a good job, there's a safety net in new business and other accounts that you're responsible for. But, and I'm interested to know, because you have had both experiences, now you're at, you're on one account, essentially. Yeah, it's a big account. It's a big account with a, with a hell of a lot of responsibilities, but it's still one account. Is there an additional pressure now that if I can't make this work, if I don't, if we don't see growth, I don't have like, I don't have four other new pieces of business the agency might give me. Um, this is it. This is where my chips are. I put the chips on the table. Um, have you felt that additional pressure deep? If, if yes, do you think that pressure is good? Um, can it be instructive? Can it help build a certain resilience or, or, or optimism? Those are themes that, that we talk a lot about on the show. I'm interested to hear your take on, on, on that concept. It definitely can be. And just to back up a minute, I will tell you, and I'm old school, but I will tell you, I am not a fan of the agency world has become so project oriented. It is really difficult for agency individuals to invest in the business, to learn the business and to really make the kind of decisions that you need them to. Um, I will tell you, I think it's one of those things that you can lead, you can learn the brand, you can learn the brand book, but you may not know the business. And that obviously handicaps sometimes the agency's ability to truly be a business partner, not just a manufacturer of ads. So I am um, not a big fan of project work. I understand the, the value of being able to bring in from a staff augmentation business um, or, or a subject matter expert, bring in somebody to work on a project, but projects are really I think one of the uh, big killers of agencies being these lifelong partners. You'll find most brands now have a roster of agencies and somebody does this and somebody does that. And part of it's the specialty that's needed, but you really do want to be a client's partner. You are exactly right on the ability on that. I love to how you called it a release valve. Um, I worked on very diverse pieces of business. I worked on Quickcrete Concrete. I worked on Navy Federal. I worked on Southern Company. And, um, you know, what affects the, uh, the business of selling power is different and um, investor-related campaigns is very different than uh, getting consumers involved in a new project, a new DIY project at home involving concrete. But it is a good mind break. Like when something is really just feels um, hard and overwhelming, you know, I can think about selling concrete for a while um, versus in re investor relations for Southern Company or for um, Navy Federal, which was, and, and Navy Federal is diverse in that we have brand efforts, but we also do a lot of account acquisition efforts. So there's always, we're always on. Um, and so you don't always have that same kind of break. That said, you do get an opportunity to learn something deeper. Like one of the things I do is once a month, I go and sit with a member service rep and listen to member calls so that I could understand what our members are thinking about. Once a month, I also spend time in a branch. If I was working on lots of different pieces of business, it would be hard to have that kind of in-depth knowledge and that, that kind of scope in my job. That's really interesting. Pam, do you have, did, 
do you have, whether yourself or family, military background, like, did you grow up in an environment similar to the customers that you're serving now? I'm grabbing a photo. This is my dad, who was a Marine. And um, that said, he was a Marine uh, at the Korean War and uh, right out of college. So he was a Marine before he was married to my mom and had a family. So we grew up not as a military family because his service was over. He served for four years and then transitioned out and then got married, started his family, went on ironically to a career in finance. So he was much more of a banker than a lifelong Marine. Um, but, the irony there is amazing. I know. It really is. And truthfully, we grew up because of that with a tremendous amount of respect for the military. Mm -hmm. My dad always talked about his time of service with great pride. And there was a lot of respect for veterans of all branches of service. He used to kid about the Navy and said, yeah, Marines like the Navy because that's our ride. Because that was uh, obviously when they were laid out on ships. So I grew up with a lot of healthy respect for it without living that life. And I, I will say that did help me have an appreciation immediately for what our men and women do about the armed forces. That's amazing. Now, so when you were working on the agency side and this piece of business came through, like, were you just a natural shoe-in for it? Did you have, like, was it just coincidence that you ended up working on this piece of business? Did you raise your hand? Like, were you foaming at the mouth being like, I've been waiting for this forever? Like, talk talk about that experience. I wanted to because of really, yes, their service to military, but the fact that they really had a purpose that was real. It wasn't just about selling checking accounts. It really was about being this lifelong partner. And I really wanted to be a part of that and build this service brand. I will tell you from the agency perspective, I was a little bit of a shoe in because I had led the Wachovia business for a long time. And so I had an in-depth banking experience. So that made me a logical candidate for it. And, um, you know, Wachovia, which doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, they were they were very much a publicly traded bank. But I understood the category from my experiences there. They overlapped with a lot of the markets that Navy Federal's in. So I understood some of the geography that they would be serving and stuff, but I didn't understand the military piece as much as I, I, I'm still learning that part every day. I learn more. What do you think? So you, from the agency background, you've worked on a ton of different brands. Like you mentioned concrete before. Um, I think that there are pros and cons to having a bit of a personal experience or call it like a passion for one project or another. But I, I also think that there's pros and cons for working on something you're com completely unfamiliar with or like not super, you know, originally interested in or didn't really know much about. So what do you think are some of those pros and cons, both for things that you kind of align with in your personal life or your personal passions, and then those that are, you know, concrete? I agree with you totally. I think the secret to that, and I call it listen loudly, you know, when we think about who we're talking to in the terms of the target audience and the prospect, you know, good creative and good marketing really allows people to get in the mind, head and heart of that person we're talking to. Well, you have to know that head and heart. Um, when I first worked on concrete, I knew nothing about building supplies. I was not a DIYer. I'm not really a crafter. That said, I probably could look at a how-to project with open eyes. Uh, better than most people, because as soon as it was, there were instructions were clear, I right away was like, what is this? How does this work? 
So that said, it was easy for me to play that beginner or that DIY. And and that one, you know, is an interesting one in that people don't really buy concrete, they buy the project. I want a fire pit. I don't want five balance of concrete. So selling projects was easier than selling product. Now on the building side, it is about selling products. So I learned a lot. I really kind of tried to immerse myself in the category as a consumer and spend some free time in retail, just as a consumer would on how they're making a brand choice and decision. Um, the fresh perspective that you're talking about from something you really know or something you don't, the fresh perspective is really helpful because you're going to ask questions that somebody new to the category is going to ask. Mm-hmm. And I think for brands like us, you mentioned Isaac at the front of the call, um, our membership base, we serve 12.7 million members. So there are financial not financial newbies there, people that are, are getting their first accounts and don't understand exactly how what interest rates are and how they're set to people who are buying your fifth home. So being able to think about it through those different lenses is important regardless of what you work on. And your ability to think about it new is important too. So whether you've got these preconceived notions, because I used to have a sign at the agency that I would show clients that basically like, remember, you're not the target audience. Because the client knows much more about the product than usually anybody who's going to see the advertising. So helping them put it in the lens and the mindset the person they're talking to is extremely helpful. Yeah, I think I I totally agree. I see the same thing all the time. Uh, I feel like I've made mistakes on like when we work with brands that I'm a customer of or I am in the target audience for. And like you, you sort of jump to a bunch of conclusions and then you really have to find a way to separate yourself and be more, um, you know, be more open to that sort of thing. Uh, I like your analogy there that like you're not selling the concrete, you're selling the project. It, it heard, you know, uh, in marketing, they say like, you know, if you're selling drill bits, you're not selling drill bits, you're selling, you know, quarter inch holes. But even that, like it's, you're not selling quarter inch holes, you're, you're selling the piece of artwork that's going to go on the wall or, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I've always found that really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it, it's really tough to be able to separate those things though, and be able to, like you kind of mentioned earlier, be naturally curious into that concept and to say like, what are we really selling here? And who is the target audience is, is something that I think we often lose sight of, but it's so important to keep in mind. I tell my team and remind people off, it's not a failure if you have learnings. Because if we're failing but not learning, that is a failure. But if you have a learning, here's what I learned and here's how I apply it to the next time. And that's really important uh, in terms of just being able to improve and do better each time. Know what's perfect. Right. And we all make good decisions based on the business case, based on the rationale. But none of us have a, a machine that can make it to perfect world where all of the assumptions you made are exactly correct. You can control some of that risk and think about it. So it's really, really important to capture along the way those learnings so that you can apply them for the future. I think that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, and it, it's, it's almost similar to curiosity in a sense, where learning from failures, remaining curious. I, I used to talk about or encourage curiosity um, and I think curiosity could actually be practiced because some people were, were, were responding. It's like, look, you're either curious or you're not. You're either athletic or you're not. There might be an inclination to curiosity, but I do think it could be practiced. Like you're driving. I just had this other day. I was driving down the street and I saw paint peeling off the shingles of an old house. And I just started wondering, like, what, what is that process? 
why does some paint peel? Why does some paint not peel? How does long to take? How long does it take paint to peel? It's like nothing to do with anything in my life. And I was, and I was like trying to practice curiosity. So I, I researched it a little bit and I read up on it. And we, Patrick, sometimes tells the team like, spend an hour a day not doing your job, like just meditating, going for a walk, like being curious about the world. And, I, and I've noticed for myself. Any day I, I spend reading a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and it could be on any topic, I, it's almost inevitable I'll find some interesting way to synthesize that and enhance like, and um, so I think that's great. I wanted to get your, your going right back to, to economics for a moment. I wanted to get your opinion on marketing to existing customers and how budgets get, out, get allocated. You're in, by, by Navy Federal, it's a little bit more obvious because you have 12 million plus members and there's lots of products you could sell them across a natural life cycle. So if somebody starts off with a savings account, that same member might need a home loan and, and so on and so forth. But to a lot of businesses, it's not so obvious why or how and if they should spend marketing budget or advertising dollars messaging existing customers and clients. For example, I think the other side of the spectrum is an advertising agency. Um, so up until recently, we didn't invest anything in trying to put new messaging in front of our existing clients, they're our clients, all right? And we're providing a service. We're managing your performance media. We're spending all your money on Google and Facebook and TikTok, et cetera. We speak to you every week. So like what possible need could there be for a message? And then it struck me, it's like, well, there's a lot of competition out there. We know we could lose business. It's happened many times. Um, why not send a monthly newsletter with what's going on at the agency? Okay, so that's a, that's a, a simplified example. But for businesses, small and large and in between, how should they go about thinking through marketing to existing members, customers, or marketing to prospects, whatever stage of the funnel they may be? And of course, you have your, your, your typical or traditional ways to break out brand and performance budget for prospecting and lead nurturing, and, and it's not as linear as it used to be. So, But I think there's this interesting dichotomy with existing customers and existing members where brands, in my view, tend to ignore them. So I wanted to know what you thought if that's true, if they are an underserviced group um, from the marketing and advertising perspective. And if they are, what should brands do and how should they think about budget allocation for existing members? Well, everybody's business is different. So they're going to have to think about it accordingly from their budget model. I ask anybody uh, if they want to talk to their current customers, two questions, one of which is, is it important? And is there a possibility of repeat purchase? So if it is, there's a lot of economics behind it. It's a lot more efficient for somebody that's already chosen your brand and hopefully is satisfied to get them to make the next purchase. So that is your most cost-efficient next sale often. The other part of it, which I think is probably maybe even more important now, is do you value advocates? Because for our business, we talk about prospects, meaning those who are eligible to join, becoming members and members becoming advocates because we want them to not only be happy and thriving here because of the services we provide, but also tell their family and friends. People trust those referrals from their peers more now than ever. So if advocacy is an important part of your brand, then I think you have to talk to the current member base. Also, as a service brand, which Navy Federal Credit Union definitely is, Let's face it, there's times that we don't control exactly the outcome they wanted. We may not be able to approve them for the loan that they wanted. They may not, but we need to make sure that they understand that it's a relationship. We're here to help you, and here's why. I can't approve you for that kind of car loan, but I could on this side. 
Um, credit card, same thing, you know. So for us to really be in a relationship, there has to be that communication there. So for us, the member marketing is a huge part of what we do. And um, like I said, I think for other brands, it's as simple as if repeat purchases are important and advocacy is important, then your current client base really is. Growth is also where you're going to get some of your best business and easiest growth. Sometimes it's going to come from those current customers. And then it goes from there in terms of the prospecting, which for us is the talking to those that are eligible for membership but haven't joined yet. Personalization. Briefly, I know you don't want to go too much into the weeds tactically. My experience um, seems to indicate that, that we become too obsessed with personalization sometimes. And we end up getting very distracted by the new flashy, glitzy thing. It used to be the merge field, right? Like now everyone got emails with Isaac, Pam, Patrick. It's like, oh, that's cool. You're addressing me by my first name. And now there's really no delta between having those superficial layers of personalization. Like, oh, wow, it's not cool that you know my first name anymore from a tech perspective. Um, but I think we could agree that we do respond better to a message when we feel like we're being spoken to in a relevant way, in a meaningful way. How do you think about personalization um, and how can brands uh, divert their attention away from the cheap trick personalizations that are prevalent and are easy? Like it's, it, to me, I compare it to conversion rate optimization on site. People love to test colors. They love to test button colors. They love to test, uh, you know, logo placements. Because it's easy, it's understandable, but it, it does not push the needle. Uh, but rewriting copy, restructuring the information architecture, doing better market research, it's harder, um, and it's, but it's more meaningful. So I think the same thing exists in personalization. And, and, and um, I've heard you speak before about personalization, and, I, and I'd love to know your take on that whole topic. Personalization is important because we're selling a relationship. We want a relationship with these members. We want to be their first call when they have a need or when they get in trouble or when they have an opportunity to think differently about it. So for you think about it, when you, who, when you have those changes in your life, who do you call? You call someone first that you know and someone that you trust. So for us, the personalization is really important. The challenge gets to be, and you hit on this a little bit, too much personalization gets into the creepy zone. Um, and I'll use the example you gave on birthday. We have a group, we have um, done some segmentation for our members, and we have two segments that are basically saying, don't ever acknowledge my birthday. And first I thought they were just grouchy and cranky because they were getting older and didn't want their birthday acknowledged. And there's a part of me that's like, a birthday is a happy thing. It'd be the alternative, be happy. It wasn't that at all. It was about how we use their data, i.e. their birthday, to reach out to them for the message. There's another part of our segments that love it. And we'll get these comments on social. Thank you. You were the first person to tell me happy birthday. And it's such joyful. I get one day a year. Thank you for helping me celebrate. Same communication. But this person valued their privacy more than that personalized birthday message, where this person was so happy because we're in a relationship that we extended to them. So we are not there yet, but we're on a journey to try to get to how do we do the personalization and do it in that happy medium where it's appropriate, it's talking to you about your needs at the right time and the right products and the right services. Often you may hear from us where it's not a product sale, it's about a service. It's about something we've noticed that you haven't done or somebody that might be having a challenge balancing their accounts. 
help them set up alerts because they can live within their balance, their means more if they had a low balance notification. So we really are looking at the services and products and how do we personalize those offerings so that we're in front of you with the right service or the next best interaction at the best time. That said, there's a lot of stuff that we'll put out that's not personalized. So tips on how to look for a social scam, um, uh, you know, a scam where somebody's fishing for your data. That's not really, doesn't need to be personal for you or Patrick or me because we all could be victims of that. So give me the top five things to look for and help you stay safe. So not everything is personalized, but we try to make it as much as we can and where it's relevant. Part of our member journey is really about knowing our members and figuring out the times that we can do it for them and make it easier for them in terms of their banking. And then show me, show me, you know me. Um, with that relevant product or service. So the personalization that's, is truly important. That's a really interesting point that you brought up that the, the, the continuum of personalization is, let's say, modulated by relationship. Because if I'm speaking to my therapist, I want the therapist, I'd be offended if they didn't know, you know the, my most intimate soul after 20 grand and a year of this. Um, I want to have those conversations. But if I'm meeting, if, if it's like this, celluloid interface between me and an unknown shadow corp. I don't want them to know anything about me, least of all my name or my birthday or where I live. So there's a continuum where personalization is not only appropriate, but is, is really desirable, right? So I think that what you were said at the top of the call, where being a member obsessed organization and manifesting that with real examples, like being able to reach a real person um, is probably to some degree, what, what allows for the personalization to stick and for it to be appropriate and for it to really work. So I guess that's interesting. To me, it, maybe it's not personalization can work or it can't work. It's like, of course it works. But what's, what's the underlying foundation of the communication? Is it a relationship? Or am I trying to sell you some, some widget? Right. Or if I'm giving you tips from everybody, like I use the fraud thing, I'm giving you tips. Those tips are true for everybody. So there's no need for me to personalize it. And if I personalize some of that information, you're thinking, does she know something that I don't know? Like, does she know that I've been hacked or does she know? So um, it's the combination of what you're personalizing as well as when. Right. No, I hear that. Um, talking about the members, the, the name of our show is called The Resilience Road. Uh, it's a topic that Patrick and I like, both like to speak about. And I want to ask you about lessons in resilience and strength and look. Your members are people who need, like, who really need to be treated with a, a unique level of respect um, and high regard, which I think would be daunting. Like if I was, like, I would not be comfortable taking a job at federal, at maybe federal only because I'd be too afraid. Like, am I, 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 do I have, am I conducting myself properly with, with military people, vets? It's like, a, it's, so I'm interested to know about training and, and, um, that level of etiquette and if that exists within the company and how, and, and it's true in marketing communications too, right? Like you want to not treat these people like regular citizens because they're not. And, um, but then just generally speaking, like how you view resilience in the workforce, um, lessons you've learned over the course of your career. Um, and then I'd love to hear after that, we'll, I'd love to hear a few minutes about uh, what you're doing with Chief, um, but, but we can start here. I love the name of your podcast because I will tell you resilience after curiosity. I think resilience is high on the list. And I think COVID, sadly, 
made all of us a lot more resilient. There were certain things that we struggled and struggled through and probably missed more and probably in some ways may have merged out of COVID not as resilient because our our um, health on that had just been beat down, if you will. And um, I think about it as you weren't able to fill up your time and connection, your love bank with those time with people because we were all alone much more. And uh, we came out of that in a, a section where we probably as a nation weren't as resilient as we could have been or should have been. That said, we were very resilient and resourceful in terms of creating, figuring out what really matters and how can you still make those things happen. If I apply that to our members, it's that same mission. How do we find out what really matters to them and serve them in a way that's appropriate and respectful of their service? You heard me talk about their membership as something that they earned, and I strongly feel that way. The, the, one of the training things we do, we do spend a lot of time in training, as you mentioned, and uh, one of the most powerful things we do on training, yes, it's how to do what you need to do for your job, but we also share these member stories in the in the context of this individual called, here's what was happening, and here's what we were able to do and how we were able to meet their need. And the stories, I think, are the emotional uh, connective tissue, if you will, that makes all that come to life. Because financial products, they're important to your life, but they may not be the thing that you wake up thinking about. But you do wake up thinking about how you felt, if you were valued, do you trust us? to make the best advice and give you the best advice for you. So all of that is kind of built together in terms of who we serve and how we serve them. Phenomenal. I find like when I'm hiring today, I was on, tell me what you think about this. I was on a call with a, a candidate a few months ago uh, and the candidate asked, I thought it was actually a good question. The candidate said, if I join Adventure, what's one thing that will really surprise me? Uh, and, I, and it wasn't a question I got frequently. Um, I said, you are going to be surprised by how capable we think you really are. Um, and she was like taken aback because it's like maybe a little scary. Like what the hell am I getting myself into? Um, but it, I, of course I meant it in a positive way. It's like, look, like building resilience and it takes time. It takes failing. Uh, one of the rules we teach new hires is, is you have to open up a client call with bad news. And if there's no bad news, you find some. And if you can find something, you start doing, running better tests. Because if you're running good tests and you're trying and you're, and you're sort of conducting advertising in a way that the clients are hiring you to do, then there's got to be some bad news. That there's got to be things that are not working perfectly. So like developing that resilience, it just takes time. It takes consistency. Um, and it takes taking lots of swings. And when you believe in somebody, you encourage them that you could take as long as you're taking the swings and you're getting back up at bat, where we have your back. Um, it's very empowering to, to young people coming out of the workforce where they, they, a lot of them didn't have traditional internships because of the last three years with COVID. They didn't have as much normative socialization and capacity to like prove to the world and to coworkers what, what their worth is. Um, and, and I think to give that encouragement, it, it builds some degree of resilience. I love, love, love that you start by talking about how capable they are because before they have earned it, it's easy to tell people how capable you are and how much you trust them when they've earned it. But the fact that you're doing it for a new hire, I love that. So it, it teaches you guys too to lean into the positive and that there's something positive in everybody. So leaning into that capability is fabulous as well as the embracing the... Um, 
the truth up front that not everything's going to be fabulous. And if it is, you probably didn't test big enough and broad enough. So that's a fabulous way to set up the, the uh, a new hire for success. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Chief, uh, Pam, tell us just, uh, I know I know we're a little bit over time, but this is interesting. Uh, for me, at least, I can't speak for, on your behalf, but just tell us and, and the listeners a little bit about what you're doing with Chief and, and what led you to to start that company. Well, and I will say, I Chief existed. I was a founding member for DC, so really bringing that to DC. And Chief is really about a network of executive women and really about forward development of each other. And you would think that there's tons of those organizations, and there isn't. Chief is really the only one that's dedicated to professional women. So for me, um, as we opened the call up front and I talked about moving to take this job, I came here. I'd been in Atlanta for a long time and had a, a very precious, fabulous resource of other executive women from client side, from people that I had worked with at the agency, from people that I knew in different roles. So I had kind of that board of advisors, if you will, the people that you can pick up the phone and make those safe calls and get good advice that's not going to be guided by anybody's uh, personal agenda. It was about your personal agenda. So I moved to D.C. Uh, to take this role, and obviously I have a fabulous peer network um, on my management capital seat, but I really didn't have that group of women that I could call for that advice call and kind of that safe third-party voice. So Chief already existed in L.A. and New York and was looking to start to expand their network. So with some other women, we brought it here to D.C. and we're part of the founding group. And um, when I first joined, I was so happy because I was with a group of women who had all earned their seat at the table, but from very diverse roles. Because it's D.C., yes, lots of attorneys, uh, but also people that were leading government agencies and people that had senior roles at a software company and we all had different challenges and it became a very close-knit community. And we started during COVID. So we weren't meeting in person, but we were together monthly on our WebEx and doing sharing and caring and celebrating each other and giving advice out. And I found that it was really amazing because it's both a safe network. A, uh, a lot of these women have gone through similar, opportun similar opportunities as well as struggles and could honestly have the um, transparency they needed to give good advice. But we didn't always agree, too. Somebody else would might say, you know, you might want to try this and you might want to try that. So it really was a board of directors for me and other women, um, executive women that could get the coaching and the counseling we needed from our peer group. So very valuable experience. According to a, uh, a Fortune report that I saw, that fewer than 5% of uh, the Global 500, the Fortune 1000 companies are run by women. Um, I want to know your take on why that might be, in your, in, and, and it might not be just one reason. Um, and I'd like to understand if you were here sitting, talking to a group of women who aspire to, to rise to leadership positions in their companies or to found companies, what would you say to them? Well, it's changed and it's getting better. We still have a long way to go, but it's getting better. And I think that women are truthfully underrepresented now at some of the Fortune 100 companies, basically from the history. They didn't have the roles, nor the experience, or working cross-channel that they currently do. That said, there's still some times that 
a woman may not be considered for a senior role because of her gender. And that's just wrong. And I think both men and women had to realize that that was wrong for it to change. So we've seen a lot of change there now. So often executive women aren't the only ones at the room, only ones around the table, which is a big, big step forward. Because then you have a voice on, in my role, I have a voice on behalf of our members. I have a voice on behalf of our brand, but I'm not there because I'm the only woman. We have a lot of women in our executive team. So others are able to speak on behalf of uh, the team members. One thing that I told you when we were connecting, and I still have this up, and um, of all people, um, RGB is a, a, somebody that I look at for advice, a woman who broke through a lot of barriers up front as a lawyer from her career coming from Cornell. And she has a quote that I often tell people to your question about what I would tell young women together. It is, Fight for the things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join. And that is powerful advice because fight for the things that you care about says that you can't fight for everything. Pick the things that really matter, the things that you care about. What are you invested in terms of making a difference? But doing it in a way that will lead others. Lead others means you acknowledge the task. You're not going to be able to make it happen alone. You're going to have to get other people, and it's going to take a village often to make this change happen or to move things forward. So, but then doing it in a way that will that will uh, lead others to join you tells you that how you lead matters. Leading with empathy, leading with listen listening skills, and uh, giving clear direction. All of those things matter, and it matters that you're right, but it also matters how you do it, and that you're bringing your best selves every day being strategic in your focus, um, but thinking about the implications of how you might implement that and doing it in a way that excites people and they want to join you and that they're going to come on and also lead others, not only to join you, but they're going to bring others with them so that they really can make the change. The last question that I have, Pam, is about kind of tying it back to some of the, the Navy federal stuff. You mentioned earlier that one of the larger challenges is just making your audience aware that you guys exist um, and to say like, like why you exist and to sort of just kind of be that reminder and be at the right place at the right time. I'm curious about uh, your take on an ad campaign by one of your competitors. You mentioned them by name, but it's a campaign I've seen um, and they have Rob Gronkowski in the commercials. And the whole take, it's kind of like a, it's a joke. And it's he, he's trying to sign up to this service and they're saying, you're not a veteran, so you don't apply. And it's sort of this like comical thing. And as a third party, like not really paying attention, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, it probably took me seeing a version of that ad 10 times before I realized what it was actually getting at. Like, oh, the whole joke is he's not the customer. He can't be the customer. Like, it took me a while to get there. I'm curious if you, one, if you think that that's a good ad or a good ad campaign. But two, what they're, what they're trying to do with that is really talk about the exclusivity of, of the, the brand. Do you agree with that approach in the way that they've gone about it? Like, I, I, I know you probably don't want to get too specific, but I am curious about your take on that campaign. I agree with the strategy because they have probably seen what we have seen. People that understand who we serve um, 
are more favorable towards us too, because they value that we have a value that's real and a mission yeah. that's real. So, and also making membership aspirational. So that part of the strategy I get and I understand. The part that we wouldn't do and everybody, everybody, every, every brand has to make their own decision what's appropriate for them and you got to be comfortable in your own clothes. The part we wouldn't do is if you can't join, I don't think you can tell me how great it is. I think your credibility as a influencer is limited if you can't really join and be part of the product. So I think it falls down a little bit in that in that area. Um, it's hard to tell you how great something is that I couldn't take advantage of. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think that I... I agree with the larger strategy there. I think that there's something about that campaign that's missing the mark. And I, I think you just sort of alluded to it. it. It could probably be a lot better than it is. So, all right. I, I appreciate your opinion on that. We've tried to do a little bit with our work where we have this duality, both where we recognize the life of an active duty as well as their civilian life. And um, at the end of the day, they're still fathers and mothers and teachers and, you know, different things. And so that's the important part of this duality that they bring to their membership, as well as in our campaign show a lot of times what life is like with us and without us. So we've taken that same challenge. And hopefully from that, you get that membership is special and it's important and you'll be a valued member if you do come here to bank with us. That's good. I like that. Pam, I want to thank you again for your time. Um, where could where could people follow you online and learn more about Navy Federal as well? Um, I am on Twitter at PG Pelligian, P-I-L-I-G-I-A-N. I, I think I'm one of the last few people left on Twitter, but I'm still there. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn at uh, just Pam Pelligian. So you'll be able to find me either place. Incredible. Thank you again, Pam. It was so nice having you on the podcast today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk about resilience. So I appreciate the opportunity. Mm -hmm.